This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Do you like the new logo? Yeah, gone is the er uh, dot dot dot. Now we've got an actual red box with fluttering papers. It's nice, isn't it? Uh, while you're admiring the logo, do post a review uh, of the podcast. Hop on, particularly if you're on the old Apple one. It's very good for the mumbo-jumbo charts. Uh, so, yeah, if you'd like to post a review, let us know what you think about the podcast, what you like. What you, you can tell us what you don't like, if I suppose, if you really want to. Uh, lovely stuff. Right, coming up on today's episode, then, it's an absolute cracker. It's the latest Times Radio focus group. James Johnson in the chair once again. Today, with people who voted Conservative in 29, who say they have switched to Labour. Just how firm are they in that? How soft is Labour's lead in the polls? Really, really interesting uh, chat with James coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with The Columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. Uh, we are joined by uh, Morning. Nice to have you with us on uh, on a Thursday morning. Uh, James Marriott's here. James, how are you? I'm well. I'm glad to be here. I'm nice. better for seeing you and for being on Times Radio. You're not seem very sure, James. No, I'm oh, very sure. It. I've been polite. Uh, we're also <laughs> joined by No Indian at uh, Night this week, but we've got Jane Merrick. Jane, how are you? Hello, I'm good, thank you. Now, um, forgive me if I get confused, because there's something about James Marriott and James... I've done it. James Marriott and Jane Merrick. Are we the same person? Yeah. I've never seen you together in the same room. Well, it uh, means something, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I'm, sus- I'm suspicious, personally. Uh, right. Uh, let's dive in, then. Uh, let's talk um, politics, first of all. Uh, and the asylum backlog uh, has hit 160,919 in the year to December. New figures out this morning. It's up by 60,000 in the space of a year. And it comes as the government plans to unveil what some people have been calling a... a it's almost like a... Well, depending on um, how you view these things, is it an amnesty? Thousands of asylum seekers will be granted refugee status without an interview. And the government plans to clear the backlog. They'll just have to fill out uh, a questionnaire. Well, this morning, the government minister, Stuart Andrews, uh, was on uh, Times Radio defending the plan. This is exactly why the Prime Minister's made this tackling the small boats one of his main priorities. And, you know, it's not true to say that, uh, you know, people will just be waved through. We have recruited hundreds of extra people to go through each of these cases. So th- at the moment, they will have to fill in uh, this form mm-hmm. that will give us, you know, all the detail that we need. Uh, that was uh, Stuart Andrew this morning. Um, 
Jane, this is one of these policies that the government has sort of briefed out to all the papers today, and every single paper, I think, across the political spectrum has found fault with it. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a good idea. There's a huge asylum backlog. The new figures out this morning, 160,000. Um, it's an extraordinary figure. And sort of handily, obviously, the government have announced this sort of hours before these new figures have dropped. It's a, it's they need to do something about this backlog. So what they're doing is they're going to deal with 12,000 claims from these war-torn countries where I think 95% of um, of claims are approved. Um, I think the issue with it is, though, that are they replacing one kind of bureaucracy with another? So there's no interview. It's supposed to be fast-tracked, yet there will still be 10 pages. I mean, it's not a tick-box um, episode, as some people are claiming. There'll still be 10 pages. Each person has to find and someone who can speak English to translate it for them, which is probably going to be a problem for a lot of people. And then if they don't respond within 20 days, then um, they are going to be forced to sort of either be, you know, moved out of the country again. So I think that creates a a new level of um, bureaucracy and other potentially more problems. So I think obviously it's good that they're trying to do something, but potentially more problems down the line in terms of um, bureaucracy and also is this fair is it fair to really give them just 20 days to fill in a very complicated form? Um, James, I mean, clearly Rishi Sunak, and he was boasting about it again at PMQs yesterday, stop the boats is one of his five priorities. We'll talk about Keir Starmer's in a moment. Um, But stopping the boats is one thing. Dealing with all the people who've arrived on boats is another big challenge. And part of the reason why we have got this enormous backlog is partly because so many people have come, but also because the system just hasn't been able to cope. And so you do wonder if a system which hasn't been able to deal with them up until now will be any better with the introduction of a new system. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it seems, you know, it seems like the, the aim is worthwhile because you just can't have people, you know, prevented from working, hanging around in hotels forever and ever. And something, you know, the idea that we should, you know, give them some kind of, you know, path forward is obviously laudable. But as Jane says, I mean, it just sounds like a total bureaucratic nightmare. I mean... You, you know, you can come to kind of process these fill, these forms that people have been advised to fill out with the aid of Google Translate and stuff. I just think, I mean, yeah, it just sounds that's not going to be a, a, an easy thing. The bureaucracy kind of just gives you a headache to think about. Um, and Jane, do you get the sense that number 10 <laughs> do have a grip on this? I mean, it feels it feels a bit like, you know, the the Home Office has been told to do something. This is the plan they've come up with. And you're right, it may be, maybe 30 days would be better, or 50 days, or five pages, or 20 pages, or 30 pages. But they've come up with something um, which there seems to be lots of doubt as to whether or not it's going to work to clear the backlog, while also, actually, you know, if the whole point of this was to try and shift the, the debate on uh, public opinion of this, amnesty row over fast track for asylum seekers, says the front of the mail. Uh, I think the Telegraph... I don't know what I've done with the Telegraph. The Telegraph is pretty hostile as well. Um... Uh, 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 yeah, asylum amnesty to clear backlog of ninety thousand claims as the front of the telegraph. So even the papers on the right, who you, who the government might have hoped might be supporting them, you know, both there's practical and political problems with this, isn't there? Yeah, Rishi Sunak won't be happy at all with the the headlines and the mail and and elsewhere. And obviously, as you said earlier, one of his pledges is to stop the small boats. And you get the feeling that sort of there was a lot of pressure on him in the new year to come up with a big picture idea on immigration. And you can't just announce these things, you have to deliver them as well. So clearly this is about, you know, it might not be tackling the specific issue of the small boat, but this is dealing with a wider issue and clearing a backlog. And it is, you know, I think 
it's very easy, I think, to sort of to sneer in politics, and we do it all the time, every day. But but to sort Come of to allow something to <laughs> to um, to be delivered. So we should give this this policy a chance. But you, but it is also very easy to see the problems with it. And I think you wonder whether Rishi Sunak is, is you know, he's often criticised for lacking a little bit of political nous. Whether he really sort of pitch rolled this enough with with the right wing papers, but that doesn't make it a wrong policy. Yeah. Um, I think there's, you know, we should give this policy a bit of a chance to work. And if it doesn't work, then we can come back and say these are the problems with it. But at least he's doing something. It's a good point, And no doubt we will return to it. Right. So that's that's one of Rishi Sunak's uh, top five priorities. Uh, right now, he's got his jacket off, his sleeves rolled up. He means business. Keir Starmer is setting out his five national missions. Let's take a listen. We're going to transform the way Britain does its business from top to bottom. We'll modernise central government so it becomes dynamic, agile, strong and, above all, focused. More open to expertise, to partnership with business, unions, communities and civil society. Mission-driven government. A slightly uh, half-hearted round of applause there. There's somebody who scored two runs in a game of cricket. Um, dynamic, agile, strong and above all, focused. Uh, do you think that's what the public really wants to hear, Jane? Um, again, it is... I mean, Keir Starmer loves sort of the big... the, the, the complicated um, way of, of explaining things. I mean, Tony Blair had a pledge card and it was really easy. It was five things on a pledge card and that was it. And John Prescott could get it out every occasion, show it to people. Keir Starmer is doing that, that equivalent today. He's got five missions. And actually, if you boil them down, it's economy, energy, NHS, crime, education. These are really important things. I think the substance of what he's saying today is will resonate with a lot of voters. But I think the delivery is just so crunchy and mealy. And it's just kind of, a, you know, needs a bit more sugar in the porridge, I think. Um, um, so it's very difficult. But it doesn't, does it, again... In the run-up to an election, is he going to be delivering these kind of speeches, or is it, is it going to is it going to be boiled down into things that people can understand? And it was easy to say this a year ago, two years ago, when he just become leader, or three years ago, and um, you know he was trying to get his philosophy across. But as we're now, say, eighteen months away from an election, he's got to really start honing that message, that mission, and I think it's very. He's sort of halfway there because he's got these five missions, but then he's adding it with things like, I mean, I was looking through this five page document, the qualities that are going to support these missions. There are building blocks. There are seven building blocks that support the mission. It's too complicated. Just just be a bit more pithy. Um, uh, James, can you name them? No, I can't. I, I think mission driven government sounds a bit like. I don't know, something that you could get in a meeting at work and you just kind of fall asleep a little bit. So, so he wants uh, sort of we should, we should the highest growth in the G7, NHS fit for the future, make the streets safe, break down barriers to opportunity and a clean, becoming a clean energy superpower. Now, if you compare that actually to the Tony Blair pledge card, which was cut class size to 30 for under five, six and seven year olds. Uh, fast track punishment for persistent young offenders, cut NHS waiting list by treating an extra 100,000 patients by releasing £100 million, get 250,000 under 25-year-olds off benefit and into work, no rise in income tax, VAT, uh, cut VAT of heat to 5%, uh, and inflation and interest rates as low as possible. Those are really specific things. Cutting class sizes to 30 or under for five, six, seven-year-olds is just a million miles away from 
um, breaking down barriers to opportunity. Yeah, all that stuff is a bit Edstone, isn't it? These kind of, you know, yeah, things yeah, that yeah, sound yeah. like, you know, big, but actually they just seem a bit wafty and they just don't stick in your head because you're like, well, this is a kind of vague terminology that anyone can use. But yeah, there's the specificity but, stays. Go on, Jay. But just to, just to jump to, to Starmer's defence here, I think, I think in the 90s, it was much easier for Blair actually to come up with specifics because the, the economic landscape was a lot easier. So you mm. could come up, you could say... We know no cuts in income tax you could be really specific about class sizes i think there's still a lot of uncertainty with the economy so in his defense i mean i think these ideas for a clean energy superpower is really forward thinking um nhs fit for the future i think they by sort of where, where we are that by necessity they have to be quite broad because we don't know what the we don't know what inflation is going to be like in a year 18 months we don't really know what, what economic situation the labor government is going to inherit so they can't really be that specific 18 months away from an election when we just don't know what the economy is going to look like. And of course, Keir Starmer Choi being specific in pledges uh, with his 10 pledges when he ran for Labour leader and he's had to drop every single one of them. Um, and, and he says it's because, as you say, the economic situation has changed. But then you sort of wonder why. I, mean, I suppose the big test, James, for this list, the new five pledges, is would anyone else disagree with them? Yeah, as a, as a as a is this going to mark you out against your opponents? Would would Rishi Sunak not support any of those? Yeah, I mean they they all sound like very good things. I, I mean I suppose the other thing to say is that you know we're always telling Keir Starmer off for being boring, but it seems to have benefited him pretty pretty well so far. And I wonder if you know standing in the background, you know, saying sort of worthwhile sounding things in a responsible sounding way, it might sound a bit jargony, but it, 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 in in a way maybe isn't that sort of jargon what we sort of slightly subconsciously want to hear even if we think we don't like it actually it's kind of quite reassuring <laughs> and maybe this sort of you know this is the way to proceed although well, be interesting if um uh we've got the focus group coming up in a sec uh just what voters think of Keir Starmer my well my suspicion is that this sort of jargony stuff will just play into people's worst fears of him yeah. they want concrete <clears throat> I don't mean concrete Edstone stuff. They want concrete uh, plans. I just looked it up. Actually, I'd, I'd forgotten this. The Edstone had six on there. I don't know why we've six now is a weird on. number. Six is a weird number. Yeah, maybe they ran out of um, stonemason <laughs> budget. They couldn't do. But 10. then, don't they say weird numbers are good for lists? Like all those Buzzfeed lists, always like thirty-two life hacks. Yeah, the odd number persuades people that you seventeen like, really times friends really summed up your life. Yeah, whatever. that's what they should be doing. That's yeah. what they should be doing. Yeah, 30, <laughs> 36 times Keir Starmer nailed it. <laughs> yeah, they should call it that. <laughs> uh, let's uh, turn our attention now to some uh, breaking news that we had uh, a little bit earlier on this morning. The legendary football commentator John Motson has passed away at the age of 77. Owen's sprinting away to the left here against Lucio. Michael Owen for England. It's a great chance. And he scored. Michael Owen against Brazil in the World Cup. An extraordinary career, dating all the way back to the early 70s. He commented on hundreds of games on radio and TV, including that match, uh, which was England against Brazil in 2002. Well, let's speak now to Mark Pugach. He's the chief sports presenter for ITV Sport. And Mark, you worked with uh, Motti for a long time, didn't you? Uh, good morning, Matt. Yes, I did. I worked with Motti at the BBC. Um, he came back to radio when, um, uh, when Match of the Day briefly lost the rights as well. So he came back to radio, which was going full circle for him, having started on on the old Radio 2, um, but obviously in, inside the BBC Sport Department. I mean, he, so for my generation, I think for your generation, for a lot of, because I know I'm a little bit older than you, a lot of generations, he was the soundtrack to our youth. 
you have to remember, of course, we had two TV channels showing football. We had three commentators that we grew up with, really, Branmore, John Motson and, and Barry Davis. Barry's still very much with us, which is which is great. So for literally millions of young boys and girls growing up loving football, uh, we, we knew them all so well because they're on our screens all the time. And Motti with his sheepskin coach, uh, coat and his distinctive <laughs> voice and his love of stats and his little lines of commentary that we can all recite. All of us who love football can recite four or five Motti lines straight away. He was a sort of almost a permanent part of our lives in many ways. And what makes him good? Because in a way, people know when a commentator is being really annoying when you're watching yes. a match. And so what made him stand out so that he didn't irritate viewers, that he did end up commentating for more the best part of 50 years? What did he have that others, other mere mortals don't? Well, he, he was very distinctive and he was very authentic. And I think all of us, you, me, all of us who work in the broadcast media know that that's really important, isn't it? You have to be true to yourself, whether that is going to work or not. Others, others higher up the food chain <laughs> will decide, won't they? But he was completely authentic. And so that his love of little stats there, which might be irritated coming out of the mouth of another commentator, actually was rather charming and was part of the uh, was part of the Motti CV. He also loved the game so passionately, and that came through. Um, so I think when when you were watching as a fan, and again, and, and I think to answer your question, part of it was the fact it was a different era. Uh, although we heard him a lot, we didn't hear him a lot necessarily in live matches until. Um, you know, an FA Cup tie, That's maybe or, or a summer yeah, cup. Yeah. It's not like today. I mean, I, it's an obvious thing to say. And, you know, my kid's generation and my football mad son, like, oh, dad, you're always going on about this. But you can literally watch a live football match every day. Yeah. You know, we watched, I, I, can, I can remember watching two live football matches a season, unless it was a World Cup or a Euros in the summer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What, one game, Motti was commentating. He was commentating uh, on, a, on an England international in about March. And at halftime, I was about 10 or 11. I was in a bit of a grump. And my dad said, what's wrong with you? You love football. I went, there's only a half to go. And then I got to wait three months for another live match. <laughs> I mean, that's, do you know what I mean? That's what it was like. And so when you, you, it wasn't that he was commentating on 90 minutes all the time. He'd heard him on Match of the Day. Yeah. And listen, we all love editors, Matt, don't we? They can all make the best of us if necessary. Mm, but it was, it was a different era which led to, to what he became. Uh, Jane, your, your memories of John Watson. Yeah, I was just thinking, actually, I think I'm probably about the same age as Mark. And it was just, he's just iconic for a kind of an 80s childhood. It was the sheepskin coat on grandstand. I mean, that was, it was just Saturday afternoons and evenings. His voice is so distinctive. And I mean, I'm not nowhere near a sort of a football expert as Mark is, but he cut through, I think, for my generation. And it was certainly that the case that, you, you know, you, we literally did have just the two channels. But it was a sort of a more, um, just a more, I don't know, an, an authentic way of listening to football as well and that sort of it was a sort of as Mark was saying a sort of a long wait until you hear that football and you hear that commentary and I think it's really sad and I think it's worth saying as well obviously Dickie Davis mm. um dying this week as well it's sort of the end of an era I think for those huge icons of of a, a 70s and 80s sports it's a good test of someone's uh influence on the public psyche if if, if James Marriott, who I would not describe as a massive football fan, but even you know who John Motson is. Yes. I've heard <laughs> of him. I wouldn't go much further than that, unfortunately. You must have you must have seen a football match that he was commentating on. I don't I, I if have you, a, if you I never watched I a mean, football match. I have watched football matches, but like two, and I'm very ashamed <laughs> of this. And I don't think you're, it's, you're reliving Mark's childhood. <laughs> 
accidentally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on and, uh, and sharing your memories of, uh, of John Motson for us. My pleasure. Good to speak to you. That's uh, Mark Pugach there, the uh, chief sports presenter for uh, ITV Sport, uh, remembering John Motson, who's died at the age of uh, 77. Uh, James, uh, your column today. Yes. Uh, you've been to a meditation session. Yeah, I'm a great fan of... I have lots of Buddhist friends. Or not lots. I have a couple of Buddhist... More Buddhist friends than perhaps the average person does. For some reason, I don't know why. Um, and yes, I was at meditation and this prompted... Uh, the reflections that led to my column about uh, I was just fascinated that this Buddhist centre I was at was absolutely packed with young people and the Church of England is very much not packed with young people. Jane Merrick from the I and James Marriott from the Times and you can read James in the Times every week just get yourself a subscription go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box up next is the focus group You're listening to the Redbox podcast now. Start for this. The big thing on Times Radio. Now, every month on Times Radio, we convene a focus group of voters to assess how the government is getting on and try and get under the bonnet of those headline opinion polls. Every month, they are run by James Johnson from JL Partners, former number 10 pollster, but he's much better now. Uh, James, uh, as ever, let's start with the uh, the legal um, uh, terms and conditions. What is a focus group and how is it different from a poll? Morning, Matt. So a focus group is a collection of voters, a small group, six to eight people. A poll is a sort of talking to a thousand, two thousand voters. It's intended to be nationally representative. It's intended to give a definitive view of what the public think. A focus group is not that. Much smaller. It's there to dig underneath the polls, to see what's going on underneath, to see how strong that support really is for a political party, to see the messages and the things that voters are talking about. And who were we speaking to? Because there's a slight change. Normally we do swing voters, so people who say they don't know. Uh, who were we speaking to this time? Yeah, so usually we speak to people who are undecided, as you say. This time we're looking into those voters who voted Conservative in 2019, but now say in the polls that they would vote Labour at the ne- at next time. And that's a key group because those Conservative to Labour switchers, it's about 15% of Tory 2019ers who are saying they'll go to Labour. If that number holds in an election... 
that would be a very, very good result for Keir Starmer. This is about really digging into who, into, into whether they'll stay or not. And just very quickly, those guys are from Wimbledon, Bury, and Derby. So all three key areas to a future general election. Now, because I was tweeting about this earlier on, I've already had, uh, I don't know anyone who's ever been asked to take part in a focus group. Where do you find these people? Yep, well, we use an independent agency uh, who recruits them across the country uh, from uh, social media, from existing lists, literally sometimes going out into the street and and, and picking people up. They're given a questionnaire so that we can work out so that we know that they're definitely who they say they are, um, and then they come over to our focus group, and I moderate it. We did have a brief technical (laughs) interruption in our focus group this week when my Wi-Fi went down, but uh, to assure listeners, uh, Matt did keep them there, but did not ask any questions, so the the process remains independent. Yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) process yes i i i you know used my deployed my skills to keep talking while saying or doing nothing uh so uh so yeah all happens on zoom they are chosen and when they when they join the group they they don't actually know what they're going to be talking about do they as well they they could be talking about chocolate bars mobile phones all those whatever sort of businesses use focus groups indeed right that is all the the terms and conditions the uh uh explanation that we need uh let's dive in then uh, and remember, this is a group, they voted Conservative in 2019, now saying they'd vote Labour. Let's get their verdict on how they think the government is doing. The government in general, there's been a lot of sceptical behaviour. And I think if we let them continue to be in charge after everything that happened, I think we're setting like a bad precedent for like, future governments. There's been a lot to contend with, but I just think the general handling has been amateurish. I think they're worse than amateurs. I think they're actually being very two-faced and they don't seem scared. I mean, it was always at the party gate and then Boris is suddenly buying eight million pound houses and he's living for free. And I just, it's just all feeling very sort of unsavoury, actually. I think they're doing awfully. The NHS is on its knees. They're letting energy companies boost their profits unfairly. The whole mini budget has messed everyone's mortgage payments up as well. It's just mistake after mistake after mistake. I feel very, very let down. We're we're struggling and we don't receive any help. Uh, I think the government's just a bit lost. And yeah, just a lack of creativity and direction and innovation. Wow. I mean, that's not a great place for the government to be. No, you can see why they're switching. Uh, real frustration with the government. It's a competence thing, but it's also a values thing as well, this sense that you heard the lady there say unsavoury. What is interesting is that a lot of what they're criticising for is actually about Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. Yeah, and yeah. we'll see later on, not so much about Rishi Sunak. Yeah. It does feel like a, these voters have... You know, they got very angry during the Liz Truss and Boris Johnson uh, years and, and weeks. Um, and then uh, it's almost like they've sort of tuned out since then. Yeah. They're still very frustrated, um, but they're not necessarily talking about things happening now. It's that huge impact, particularly of that Truss mini-budget, on the Tory brand that stuck with them. And is there a, a, an issue there that people... Are, when you ask someone, what's the, how's the government doing? And they come out with Boris Johnson, Liz Truss type stuff. Does that mean that uh, there's some value in Rishi Sunak essentially disappearing. I think we'll hear a bit later on they talk about that. Or or is there a risk that, that, that people are now so locked in that the government, the Conservatives are Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. Yeah, I think clearly there are opportunities for Rishi Sunak to you know, d- distinguish himself from them. Um, it's difficult, though, because obviously, you know, number 10, the Conservative Party, have made that judgment that actually voters are, are sort of so done with them at the moment yeah. that actually they're not going to move the dial by promising them loads of stuff now, and actually they need to prove themselves through delivery. I expect that's the right strategy. Yeah. Um, you asked them to uh, rate how the country was doing out of 10. 
uh, with 10, obviously, the country's going great guns and zero very much. This not. is miserable stuff. By this the is way. miserable stuff. <laughs> Uh, the scores were four, four, three, three, two, one, three, and three. That's what they think of how uh, of how the country's doing. Let, let's hear why. We've got a lot of improvements to make. It's just not a nice place to be. We're, we're slowly slipping down the ladder. Quality of life in Australia, Canada is better. A lot of these emerging economies are going to quickly catch up with us. I think maybe in my life it's been like the worst it's ever been. I just feel that everything is sort of running out, running down. We don't seem to own anything. We've got nothing to bargain with for anything. It's like we're running on empty. Gosh, I'm going to come away from this call very depressed after this. <laughs> it's it's a scary place to be at the minute and can't really see a way out. And I do worry for what kind of world my children are going to grow up in. Running on empty. That's sort of... I mean, it's sort of what Labour and Keir Starmer try. They've been trying to find the phrase whether it's enough or enough or nothing is working. It's that that sort of place, isn't it? The, 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 people have just given up. We don't own anything. We can't run anything. Nothing works. Yeah, there's no way out. I mean, uh... and these are people who voted for Boris Johnson in 2019. These aren't some bunch of you know dying dying the world Labour voters. Yeah, yeah, and it's worth saying too. Neither nor are they on the poverty line. You yeah, know, these are voters who are not you know, rolling in money, but they're pretty affluent, you know, the middle income, middle income voters. Um, so, yeah, there is that general sense that things are going in the wrong direction. And their expectations are that things will get worse. Um, you know, they actually, when we asked about the economy, they did say in, in the spring and summer, we actually expect things to worsen. Um, you can read that two ways for number 10. On one hand, maybe decline, this sense of decline is so yeah. powerful, it's going to last all the way to the election. The other side is that if the economy does improve later in the year, maybe maybe they'll be pleasantly surprised. But it, it's going to be one of those two. OK, let's... Uh, so that's the Conservatives and the government and the economy in the country. What do they think uh, this group of Conservative voters now saying they'll back uh, Labour? Uh, how do they sum up Rishi Sunak in a sentence? Yeah, I think he's a smart, intelligent fella. He's got potential. I think he's a nice guy. He comes across as being a nice guy. You don't see a lot of him on the news. It looks like he, he just wants to get on with the job. Intelligent. He comes across quite calm and collective. He's an economist. That's fine. But I don't know if he can lead this country. I don't instinctively hate him. I don't really know what his plans are. Competent but weak. So he's not very visible. He's not very reassuring. Out of touch. He could do really well for those that could essentially afford it. And then is looking out for those that are at the bottom of the pile, but I just feel a bit left out. Not very visible. And there was quite a long discussion about how they don't see him very much and he's gone into hiding a bit. And I just wonder whether this is a good strategy. Because if, if people, I suppose if you're not out there defining yourself, people define you for, you know, to define you themselves. And if they're defining you as being competent but weak, not really up to much, doesn't really know what he's doing... Rishi Sunak suddenly appearing in a flurry of activity during an election campaign. Well, where have you been? What have you done? Yeah, I, I think the key thing, I think, is finding moments where Rishi Sunak can demonstrate strength. Clearly, strength is a bit of a weak point at the moment, um, and that's what they're really looking for from the politicians. Um, but it is worth saying the difference between their views of the government and the party there and how they view the Prime Minister. It's really interesting, that. You know, for, you know, that is a real... That is an opening, and it is a real pattern across you know, the polling as well, that is, is going to be really important, I think, come come the next few months. Now, at the moment, as I say, they're not linking that to change their views of the party. 
And maybe they won't. You know, maybe this is just the new norm. Maybe they're so given up that maybe they won't. But there is also a chance, of course, that uh, if Rishi Sunak delivers something, then they might they might start to view things differently. But it's very hard to see at the moment which line that will that will fall on because at the moment they like Rishi Sunak, they want to like Rishi Sunak, but it's not changing their views of the party as a whole. It is interesting. If you, you're right, if you look at the the polling, uh, the sort of headline polls, you've got Labour on what forty five, forty six, up to fifty percent. The Tories down in the low twenties, but then if you look at the who do you think would make the best prime minister, it's much much closer. You've got sort of I think I was looking at the uh, Keir Starmer's on sort of thirties, low thirties, and Rishi Sunak's on sort of mid twenties. It's pretty, you know. So I suppose that tells us that people are viewing them differently to the the, the headline figures of uh, the political parties. Yeah, and look, it's, it's worth also considering the counterfactual that that might not matter. So in 1997, for example, John Major was actually pretty competitive on that best PM question too. Yeah. John Major was also quite competitive on the question of who might run the economy. Um, so it may not actually matter, but I do think that it is an interesting trend. And I think the, the real difference is with Rishi Sunak compared to Boris Johnson uh, from Partygate onwards and Liz Trust for the whole of their premiership yeah. is that they want to like him. And yeah. that is a really important thing for a politician to have. He does still have that sense of, we want to give him a chance. And when asked to rate them out of ten, they gave seven, six and a half, five, seven, seven, five, five and five. So the market which is in out much better than the state of the country. Again, it's that, it's that uh, distinction. Well, um, the key thing, I really, really, reason we wanted to do this group of uh, Toys and Labour switchers was to get their view on the Labour Party. OK, so we've looked at what they think of uh, the government and Rishi Sunak. Let's turn our attention now to the Labour Party. Because what we're trying to get get our head around is how solid is that big Labour lead in the polls, 20 25% lead in the polls. So this is the group uh, summing up Keir Starmer in a few words. I do know that he wants to tackle inequality and justice. But him personally, I don't really know... Well, he seems to have a level head and has certainly sorted out the rubbish that was in the Labour Party. And it's hopeful. He looks a hopeful candidate. He seems like an okay person, very quite argumentative, always got an answer. Wooden turncoat. He always makes me think of a wooden soldier. And turncoat because I think he had a number of pledges and then he went back on them. Weak, whiny, annoying, too idealistic. Everything that the Conservatives are saying, it just stands up and it's anything to be against them. I don't trust him. They've managed to make Labour seem to like appeal to more people. I think that, I think that's because Conservatives did so badly, though, rather than Labour actually doing anything different. These are Labour vote people who said they're going to vote Labour at the next election. Weak, whiny, like a wooden soldier. I don't trust him. Yeah, wooden turncoat, I wooden think. Wooden turncoat, Which, yeah, yeah. I don't think I've heard those two words together before. Um, look, they are. Uh, look, there are some positives in there for, for Keir Starmer. Um, people saying they had a sense of what he believed in. We weren't hearing that uh, some yeah, time yeah. ago. But there were a lot of don't knows, um, and there were there was what we've heard over and over again with our undecided swing voters. This sense of uh, he opposes for opposition's sake. He plays politics and perhaps we're not quite clear what his views really are. And those things are going to play Keir Starmer. I think we said last month that you know, there is a chance that come an election, outlines a manifesto, and a lot of these voters go, oh, all right then. Yeah. Um, so we, we shouldn't rule out that possibility. Um, but what is very clear from this is that they are not enamoured with Starmer 
in the way that perhaps they might have been for Blair in 96, 97. And uh, I'm not totally convinced that his five missions missions that he's outlining today will necessarily uh, turn those things around. Um, and it was interesting because we did this on Tuesday night, so it was before, obviously, all the, the, the mission stuff came out. But uh, one of the people there picking up on the fact he had these ten pledges when he ran to be Labour leader and he's dropped them all. He's had quite a hard time today, I think, for people asking... Uh, well, why should we trust your missions if we couldn't trust your pledges? Yeah, that, and, that, that starts becoming a problem. Yeah, and, and it's one thing we've seen in the focus groups a lot is people feeling that Keir Starmer perhaps listens too much to the focus groups. <laughs> and that is really important because if they don't feel that he's got genuine views, then actually that, that really matters. But look, th- I, I don't want to be too negative here because, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, yes, there are some doubts about Starmer, uh, but they basically think he's an okay bloke. Yeah. And I think that that matters because it means that, you know, the, the, their barriers are, they don't feel like, like they, they don't feel like existential barriers They're to voting Labour. They're a base Labour. to build on, but Labour shouldn't fool themselves that the big lead in the polls means they haven't got some, yeah. some work to do. One interesting thing, when you asked them uh, for Starmer out of 10, they said five, 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 three, five, four, and 4, which actually is lower than what they were scoring Rishi Sunak. Yeah, and, and and this is the thing. You know, if this becomes a presidential campaign at the next election, Rishi Sunak has some actions to prove to show. Then it could potentially could be switch. closer than it than it is. Uh, but look, it is clearly advantage Labour in the polls, and these guys, they're not ecstatic about Starmer, but they're not so disappointed that it stops them from voting yeah. Labour. So uh, <laughs> that's what they think of Keir Starmer. Now let's try and get under the bonnet of why they are now saying they've switched. Why have they gone from voting Conservative in 2019 to now voting Labour? My mindset today, if I got asked, I'd like to give Labour a go. Will they do any better? I've, I've no clue. But I'm just reluctant to vote again for Conservative to see it go further downward spiral. I just think the Conservatives have become a bit like one of those sort of corrupt emperors and they just, they poisoned themselves and they poisoned everything around them. The trouble is, I can't say that actually Labour's filling me with much joy either. I've kind of lost faith in the political system uh, in terms of parties. So I might do a protest vote. Conservatives have been in a long time. Um, I think it's just time to give someone a newer chance. Uh, yeah, it's not that I, I want to vote Labour, it's just that I can't vote to it again. They preach about equality and, you know, sorting the NHS out, so... I would go with Labour purely to give them a chance to do that. What's really striking there is the main reason they're saying they're going to vote Labour is to do with the Conservatives. It's a it's a it's a being repelled by the Conservatives rather than attracted by by the Labour Party. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. They're, they're lukewarm. They're very frustrated about the Conservatives. The corrupt Emperor's quote there, I thought, Amazing. was yeah, brilliant. Um, they were a particularly good group. We obviously don't know when they when they pop up on the on the Zoom, but. Just great turns of phrase. The corrupt emperors uh, was was particularly good. I mean, I, you do worse. Labour Party do worse to give Labour a go as an election slogan. Yeah, there's definitely that sense. And uh, you know, basically, if that if if we did a focus group like this in a year's time, I think it would be fair to say it was looking very very dicey for the Conservatives indeed. Um, the question is now is that whether the Conservatives can win back any of that goodwill over the next 12 months. But, uh, yeah, no no warmth for Labour, but such frustration with Conservatives that uh, that they, they, they feel, well, what, why not give it a try? Yeah. So you asked them uh, how made up uh, was their mind? Could their mind be changed? Let's take a listen. I think I'm willing to give Rishi a chance. 
I think it's very early days. So I'd like to hopefully see within the next few months stuff to be sorted out around cost of living and that to improve. If if by summer um, we're in a worse position or nothing's changed, then yeah, that's me completely lost all faith in them. I think if we start to switch off the support throughout the year and we continue to go into a recession, I'm, I'm kind of losing hope. It certainly could change my mind, but I just don't think... We haven't got clear strategy to come out of it. And I know, you know, the Ukraine war came came upon us fairly quickly, but we're a year into that now. It's interesting. Again, uh, you know, they could, they saw that they're still willing that, that benefit of the doubt, or at least, you know, they don't feel like they know enough about Rishi Sunak. You know, give the guy a chance, find out what he's all about. Give him till the summer, give him to the end of the year. You know, he needs to turn things around. Um, but they, I mean, they, they feel like they're still going to tip Labour, you know, more than Tory. Yeah, I think they can't see or picture what Rishi Sunak could do to win that to win them round. Yeah. Um, there are some pitfalls for the Conservatives ahead. So you heard though the reference to the energy support package potentially mm. being switched off in the middle of the year. Strong sense that if that happened, I think these voters would would be even more locked into Labour. Um, but look, if the economy improves, if inflation goes down, if Rishi Sunak can turn around and say I delivered, you know, uh, some f- four or five of these promises that he made, um, then then that could 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 well have an impact and and sh- shift the polls. They're not going to be shifting anytime soon, um, but in the in twelve months. Um, uh, potentially. It is worth saying that when we talk about those promises with the voters, Rishi Sunak's five promises, that is, and we can talk about Keir Starmer's five missions in the next focus group, um, when we ask about them and we say, well, what if they were delivered then? Yeah. People actually do, you know, there's a, there's a view in the press that uh, actually they're really easy to achieve and they're all going to happen automatically. Voters don't feel that. They actually feel, oh, these are quite ambitious. And if these are met, then we might actually give them a second hearing. The big question is, can Rishi Sunak deliver them? Although, actually, they didn't know on your first go. They didn't really know very much. One of them said there must be one on the NHS. Yeah, and and very quickly on that, last month we asked that question and we got complete silence. This month we asked the question, got silence, but then after about 20 seconds, someone said, oh, there could be one about waiting lists. And someone else said, is there one about immigration? Someone else said, is there one about the economy? It's a team exercise. They got there eventually. Yeah, now we we can't, you can't use focus groups to track. You need to use polling for that. But uh, the best number 10 can hope for is that people are able to kind of vaguely know there are some promises and name a couple of them. And there were signs that that was starting to happen in this this month's focus group. So pressing them on uh, how sure they were they'd vote Labour out of 10. Uh, a seven, seven, six, eight, four, three, eight, and four. So there's, you know, some some more certain than others, which very much came across there. Uh, so um, this is what they had to say about what might deter them. What are their hesitations about putting a cross in the Labour box? I think Labour likes to spend. That is quite worrying. If there's no substance behind the spend and it's not going to lead to growth. In the past, they've had all these very idealistic policies and no real way to fund them or plans to achieve them i just think so far it's been a bit wishy-washy in that they've made pledges and then they've gone back on pledges oh he's, he's taken to standing with like the union jack behind him i don't like that very much i know ryan i don't need to be reminded it's spend 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 with them and that ain't going to sort out the nhs as an example you can throw money at the nhs but that's never going to sort it out i just don't know enough about the policies and the fact that I don't really like him. Any concerns about strikes, trade unions? Is that a concern for anyone? There's enough of them already, isn't there? Without Labour. 
That was a good. That was a very good point. The, the, when the, the Conservatives tried to accuse Labour being in the pocket of the unions, well, we've got quite a lot of strikes as it is. Um, here's an interesting thing, and this is this I goes I suppose goes right to the heart of when we see polls and it's hard numbers, you think this is all hard and fast and solid, and everyone's thought it through. Uh, a group of people who simultaneously want more support and cutting waiting lists and all of that, while also criticising Labour for spend, spend, spend. Yep, and that Labour spending issue has been, you know, in focus groups since since 2010, and it's still an issue for them. I actually think, by the way, if Labour do win the next next election, I actually think that kind of insight means that they'll probably win the next one bigger, because yeah. I think a lot of voters who perhaps are worried about Labour's record on the economy, if they could show that actually they're not overspenders, yeah. uh, then then they may win win some of them over in, in the in the medium and longer term. Um, but look, there are hesitations on the economy, on spending, on sort of general sort of competence and handling, and on the leader. Like I say, none of those things are holding them back from voting Labour at the moment, but those are the messages that the Conservatives will be hearing in their research. Because they'll be doing these, exactly the same focus groups uh, uh, and asking the same questions. Absolutely. Yeah. They will be looking to make these concerns more salient in the public's mind, and Labour will be hearing the same things and hoping to shore up their defence against this. This is why you see Rachel Reeves talking about spending and you know, yeah. restraint, because they know that this is one of the number one hesitations about Labour, even though you might not hear it much on sort of Twitter, social media and the press. It is the public's biggest hesitation. In fact, the best thing they could have for Kirstar was a massive Labour row about spending. Uh, that actually, I mean, maybe maybe that's what he ought to be doing when when pressed. Why have you given up on scrapping tuition fees? He ought to say because I will not spend a penny that we don't have or something. Yep. Instead yep. of getting himself in a tangle, which is what he seems to be doing. Uh, finally, then uh, we always like to do this uh, because I'm sure. Well, in fact, I know that people in politics, both uh, Conservative and Labour, listen to these focus groups. Um, uh, I'm not sure if the Prime Minister does. Maybe he will. Uh, so we always ask them what if if you could give your own message directly to uh, Rishi Sunak, what would it be? This is what the group had to say. Please focus on inequality and how bad it's going to get further down the line if nothing's done about the cost of living crisis. Please help. Help me. Give us some clarity. Pull your finger out and put some plans in place that are going to make a difference to the general public. Just to get his act together and just think of the people. Um, But most people are financially and emotionally on their knees. They need help. A clear roadmap to come out of recession. Build a stronger foundation. So that was the message to uh, Rishi Sunak. What would the group tell Keir Starmer? Concrete strategy, let's hear it. Get out and see your constituencies and let's understand a little bit more about you. Stop hiding behind an act. I just feel that he's like doing this very good performance and not really actually telling us anything about anything. Just to be straight and honest. Uh, let's see some substance behind these grand plans you've got. Continue to close the information gap and make sure people know what is actually going on and what's the plan going forward. Let's see what you are planning to do. Relate to us. Let us know what your plans, how you're going to achieve them, how that's going to have some impact on us. So those are the messages, James. If you were advising Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, what would be your uh, your pithy verdict to them? Well, look, I think verdicts on that is, first off, is that these voters have switched to Labour and people have been tweeting us and telling us to do a focus group of these this audience yeah. for quite some time. They are not locked in. Um, they are very volatile. They've sort of, as I say, they noticed all the Liz Trust drama and then kind of got very angry and have sort of switched off since. Um, that does mean that they are potentially winnable. They they like Sunak. They have doubts about Starmer. 
But overall, if you're Labour listening to this focus group, you're probably relatively heartened. Um, These voters broadly were saying they would stick with Labour at this point. The big question now is the battle to keep them in there. And I think, you know, for Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives, they're going to want to bring up those Labour hesitations. They're going to want to put Rishi Sunak more front and centre than the party because he's clearly a benefit. Keir Starmer and Labour, they need to do as much as possible to, well, set out their stall and and persuade these voters that they're on their side. And that's clearly what Starmer's trying to do today. The polls show a very clear advantage for Labour. I think what this focus group shows is that it is softer than some of those headlines might look. Uh, but also that, uh, yeah, it's not falling away just yet. And it's still quite bad news for the Tories. There is a a path for the Conservatives, um, but it is extremely narrow. That focus group probably slightly narrowed that path further in my head, uh, but it does still exist. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.